Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's, a, it's a, an astute question. Um, gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right <laughs> to agree to agree to this. Hi, I'm Catherine Steiner Dare, and my dilemma is that I live in Maine, and my eight-month-old little granddaughter lives in Los Angeles and we just had her here for three and a half months with her parents all summer and I'm going through horrible empty nest syndrome all over again. Well, I can't buy you a private jet and I cannot make teleportation a reality, Uh, but I can remind you of your own advice from your best-selling book. Uh, You write in the book about how video chatting to connect with family far away can be a really great use of technology and a way to stay closer. Um, Not the same as seeing the grandkids in person, but certainly better than uh, having to rely on snail mail sent via Pony Express. (laughs) So a reason to be grateful for technology when used correctly, which is a great way to start our conversation. That's what she said. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week's podcast was a true group effort. I reached out to a number of my friends with kids of all different ages to help come up with the questions that I posed to my guest. Uh, I've got three nieces and a nephew. I'm fascinated uh, by human psychology, social connections, development, um, and how our world and human beings in general are changing as a result of technology, particularly technology that's designed to addict us, designed to dictate our behaviors. Um, So to discuss all of this, and particularly how to raise kids and interact with kids in this world, I went to the best. Catherine Steiner Adair. She's a clinical psychologist, researcher, author, and consultant with 30 plus years of experience, focusing in particular on children not having just the technological tools that they'll need to inherit this AI future, but the tools of our humanity, empathy, ethics, social and emotional intelligence, and DEI competencies that they'll need to thrive in an ever-changing interconnected world. So her 2013 book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age, was a Wall Street Journal best nonfiction book of 2013 and helped her become a go-to consultant internationally, working with schools, parents, governments, organizations, corporations, health professionals, all to strengthen psychological health and well-being of kids. Uh, So I think this is a conversation everyone can learn and benefit from, whether you're a parent or not. In fact, it might also help you with your own screen addictions and tendencies. So enjoy. That's what she said. I'm so excited to talk to this week's guest, and you'll be surprised at my interest in this topic for those of you who know that I don't have children, but I am absolutely fascinated by the introduction of um, the very serious tech innovations that have occurred over the length of my lifetime and how they affect social communication, behavior, family interactions. Um, I have several nieces and a nephew, and I have so many friends with young kids that I thought this was a really worthwhile way uh, to spend about 45 minutes to an hour talking about this stuff and getting it from a very, very, very major expert in the field. So, Catherine, I have no idea how we're going to get to all of this, but we're going to do our best. And so we're going to skip some of the early stuff and just get to the heart of what made you get into this area of study and what did you intend to study, uh, I presume, before the tech boon made this such a focus? 
Oh, such a fun question. Okay, so I got into this as a parent struggling um, with my own kids and the introduction of technology in their lives. Um, when my son had just turned 13, he had just had a bar mitzvah and uh, he had a little money that he could use for quote, educational things. <laughs> we were in the car uh, listening to NBR and they announced that the first 98, this is 1998, the first 98 kids or the first 98 people who uh, showed up at this hall MIT would get Windows 98 for $98. And he said, Mom, I'm doing that. And I said, really? Okay, how? <laughs> MIT is a big place. So that night at dinner, he came down and proposed to his dad and me that he and his father would sleep on Mass Ave overnight, and I would show up in the morning with donuts and coffee. Oh my God. And it worked. He did it. He was this little teeny <laughs> bleep in the line of MIT kids. Um, and Windows 98 came into our household. And I watched my son change in some ways that were alarming to me. I'm trained both as a developmental psychologist and a clinical psychologist. And it turned out that um, Dan is very gifted at gaming. And I watched him get really cranky and angry mm. and dysregulated when I would say, hey, honey, come to dinner. And I hadn't seen this kind of behavior in him. I rarely saw it when he was a toddler. And it just struck me as very unusual. And at that point, there was no research at all on the neurological impact of gaming on kids or any research at all about the impact of screen time on our brains, our capacity to deal with frustration or shift gears, etc. So I began to wonder, what is it like to be doing this activity so much? And I kind of flipped and flopped as a parent. I did exactly what you shouldn't do. I would give very mixed messages. On the one hand, it was like, get off that thing. It's driving me nuts. And then on the other hand, he was gaining a lot of social capital for being so good at it and helping right. people. And eventually he taught it in high school, you know, computer sciences and stuff. So that was round one for me of my, piquing my interest. And then the next thing, a couple of years later, my next child came along and MySpace came along, mm. which for those of you who remember was designed <laughs> for middle school kids. Really? And whoever thought that a anonymous... I used that to meet men in California in my early 20s. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay. So let me tell you, what a horrible idea for middle school kids, right? Yeah. To be able to meet anybody, yeah. anywhere, mm -hmm. and their parents are clueless. Mm -hmm. And my daughter got a really scary, creepy message, and we had no idea where it came from. So it was like, oh, what? You know, parenting is changing radically. And... I then, as a therapist, had adults and kids coming in, showing me text wars yeah. that were really bonkers because, you know, the, the thing that came up the most that sort of put the light bulb on in my head was over and over, people would show me a text war and the phrase, I'm sorry, would be sort of the end. And they'd hand me their phone and suddenly I'm a therapist, I'm supposed to be like an oracle. What do they mean by I'm sorry? Is it, mm -hmm. oh my God, I'm really sorry? Or was it snarky like, I'm sorry? 
or like, sorry, um, and then they would ghost. And the problem with texting, of course, is there's no tone of voice. So you don't right. know the tone in which right. someone's speaking. So I just decided I want to do a deep dive into the impact of all this stuff, smartphones, gaming, etc., on the lives of kids and parents and educators. What I had studied before, and my research has always been on shifts in the culture or shifts of the world we live in that undermine kids' capacity to live into their full potential. Right. And this is an obvious one. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. and I'm curious because one way that I, when I was still considering if I wanted to have kids or not, and I would talk mm-hmm. to people about it, and I said, aren't you afraid of all of the ways that, that you know, texting and social media has affected kids' experiences. And the one thing that sort of made me feel less scared or that made some of my friends feel less scared was the idea that parents had gone through these kind of stretches before. Kids suddenly able to drive cars, kids able to talk in AOL chat rooms. How does this recent stretch of innovation over the last, you know, two decades or so differ from previous times of innovation? Well, uh, the biggest, I mean, there are many ways in which it differs. You know, people often say, well, tell, you know, everybody thought the world would end when television came out. And right. the world didn't end, but literacy rates certainly dropped. Um, people reading books for pleasure certainly dropped. Um, so there there are a lot of differences. You know, you, you fall asleep in front of a TV. <laughs> you don't fall asleep when you're texting. So the human brain interacts very differently with a smartphone than it does other forms of technology. And the human brain is manipulated by technology and the algorithms in technology in a way that's completely new and very and can be insidious. So... What is so different is that the parts of the brain that light up when you're engaged with texting or video or gaming, which, of course, is very different from the parts of the brain that light up when you're learning how to, you know, roast a chicken using YouTube or a video, are the parts of the brain that light up when we gamble that um, are very vulnerable to several designs in the way social media apps are designed to keep you engaged, Mm. to lose control over how much time you spend, and to make you crave more engagement for starters. The best example I remember hearing, I think it was in The Social Dilemma, but I can't remember, was the concept of there was no part of Excel spreadsheets that was intended to make you never want to leave the spreadsheet in front of you, right? <laughs> and so there was the there was introduction of computers and apps and tools, but the new, you know, dependence on internet and smartphones is tied to a very intentional act by the people creating these apps and spaces to keep you around. Um, yeah, and then you see more ads, and, and and that I think is the is one of the major differences. And you know, the social dilemma is a great example of one of the the very clear things that a lot of people have seen that tries to dive into the research and understand the effects of these things on our behavior, our brains, our development. Um, when it comes to this current uh, innovation and revolution of tech, how far along do you think we are? How much time have we had to really understand it, and how much of it is still hypothesizing at this point? Well, it's been out long enough to know that there's some really serious psychological, cognitive, social fallout, political fallout. I mean, we're we're seeing 
shifts in in uh, people's cognitive capacity, their attention, their capacity for attention, right. for deep focus, for reflective thinking, to self-regulate that are real. Um, the research lags horribly behind the innovation. And what's particularly, I think, alarming about that is that there's no ethical control or review board for the ways in which algorithms are designed to manipulate kids as well as adults. So we have a technology without ethics, without regulation, that is manipulating brains and manipulating emotions and arousing people in ways that are very um, potentially hurtful and harmful or mean or just a waste of time. And there's no at least especially in our country, there's minimal regulations about this. And limited digital literacy to understand the roots uh, or the sources or their legitimacy or the vetting that goes into the news or the things that you read and see. Um, Yeah, and I think that that's a part of it, too, is there's there's a lot of fear around not understanding it and for good reason. But there's also such a dependence on it that people struggle to find the balance between embracing how tech connects us and, and, and benefits us versus the, the drawbacks. And I think that's where so many of the concerns come for parents as they're trying to feel responsible for someone else. And I wonder if you can speak specifically to what the research tells us about social development in children. I think I saw you in a different interview talk about how the rates of personal interaction in person, just going out and spending time together, um, are, are dro- dropping tremendously and not not just after the pandemic, but even before. Right. I mean, during the pandemic, in in many ways, all these screens were life-saving, literally, metaphorically. But what we know is, especially about until the age of 10, you you want kids reading from books. You want kids playing in the three-dimensional world. You want them using their hands to build. You want them doing things like, you know, building forts with the cushions in your living room where it's frustrating and it falls down and you have to rebuild it up again. And you want kids really being fully in their body, developing coordination and the capacity to deal with frustration. And also you want kids to understand that when they are working on something, creating something, struggling with something, doing homework, whatever it is, they need to develop the the skill of dealing with the frustration of having to work harder, having to rewrite, having to edit, having to look further, get more information. And what we see when kids are, um, you know, sitting on a couch on a, playing games on end for between four and six hours a day or whatever it is they're doing, they're not developing those skills and they're not developing the neurological pathways that, um, they build upon for a later, you know, learning more and being more successful and living into their little brilliance, whatever it is. And that's that's problematic. One of the um, examples you use in your book that I think was very easy for me to understand the importance of the well-roundedness of certain types of play versus mirroring that play online mm-hmm. is yes. a little girl who's playing dress up. And when she says, I'm going to play dress up, she means I'm going to touch a screen and put clothes and hair accessories and things on a cartoon and then she doesn't have the touch of different fabrics the physical movement of putting things on and taking them off the play presumably with someone else um and there are so many ways that we replicate 
old school traditional play on a screen and you don't really think about the fact that all you're moving is one little finger and you're not touching and feeling and learning as much about the things that you're interacting with. And that's, you know, across so many different um, types of, of, of interactions. And I think also the, um, like you mentioned with COVID and, and the pandemic, the, the tech that saved us and allowed us to stay connected also probably instilled in kids a dependence on recreating the things they had done in real life online. And once they start doing that, I would imagine it's hard for them to go back, right? It's very hard because, you know, if you play the marble game on the floor, right, you know, you build those those marble runs and it falls apart or you're building, you know, with blocks on the floor and it falls apart. It's frustrating. It takes time. And then you rebuild it. Mm. When you do it on the computer, you just put click and it resets instantly. Right. Right. So what we want, actually, are kids getting frustrated in the process of creating. Because when you do it in real life, like the dress-up example, one of the most important things to think about are what are they putting, um, what are the images they're working with on screens? They're, you know, Some of them are just so, they're in, in caught in the gender straitjacket, and they're, some of them are frankly racist, and they're, you know, they just portray some horrible stereotypes. And you let a child, you give them a box of stuff to play imaginatively with, and their little imaginations are so creative and so delicious. And in the process of playing dress up, you learn that you have this, this beautiful capacity to generate in your own imagination new ideas, fun, make connections between things, come up with new creative ideas. You know, when kids come in and say, I'm bored, you say, oh, we'll go back and play a little bit more. What were you just doing? And why don't you try a new way of doing that? And we send them back and forth and back and forth. So they get used to working harder to create more. And that kind of flexive, uh, cognitive flexibility and creativity is so important. It's why kids playing and tinkering at whatever it is they're interested in is so important when it's self-generated. You know, Steve Jobs talked about how he just tinkered in the garage hours on end. And, um, you know, Gates and Steve Jobs, they don't agree on many things, but they did agree on not giving their kids devices Mm -hmm. because they know that you cannot neurologically and developmentally reboot the first, you know, 10 years, 14 years Mm -hmm. of engaging in the three-dimensional world. And that's the thing that I think um, can be so overwhelming to parents is Mm -hmm. you don't get a redo (laughs) and the ways that your child's brain develops and the things that you do that instill in them who they are can have such long lasting effects. I mean, it's, I am never more grateful to my parents than when I listen to some sort of podcast or discussion about the, the trauma of our youth being the most elementary part of most people's adult issues. It all comes back to their youth. And I'm always so grateful to them just not screwing me up, Um, or at least not too much. I guess it depends on who you talk to. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I actually went to a handful of friends and I solicited their most burning questions because I thought who okay. best to know what you would, you know, be able to help them with and to help them avoid uh, mm-hmm. those those fears. So I'm going to start with uh, my friend Jana. She has two daughters, a kindergartner and a third grader. And she okay. asks about balance, the appropriate degree of access to set kids up for success because it's an ever evolving tech enabled and dependent world, but still right. making sure they actively engage with the world around them and stay social. And how do you balance that too with school? where some are really behind on tech and then some are too dependent on it? Okay, two different questions. First question. I think it's really helpful for families or parents or whoever is raising children to think about what are your values first and foremost? And then what do you want your kids to be doing in a given day? What do you think is really important? What matters in terms of their own social development and and them just sort of being healthy? You know, sort of like what's a tech health and well-being approach to all this? And what I would say is you want them playing outside. You want them reading for pleasure. You want them helping around the house, learning to cook, develop independence, play well with other kids, play well on their own, um, have unstructured time. Uh, have the experience of being part of a community, whether it's just the two of you or seven of you, where we're in it together, you know, we help each other out. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things are really important. Make your bed, share, you know, tell the truth. (laughs) Stuff like that. Be kind, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 when we're upset we hurt each other or, you know, we practice, you know, very good restorative practices at home. You know, we make up, we talk, we understand, we listen, we care about one another. We own our own stuff. We're accountable. So a kindergartner and a third grader, they will develop a lot of those skills by being engaged in the world around them. Right. They also can develop some of those skills by doing screen-based activities. The biggest question at kindergarten and third grade is what you let your kids see and what limits you put in and what guardrails you put in. Because watching a video, learning how to cook brownies or muffins or, you know, how to sew something or knit or create is entirely different from watching schlock on TikTok. Right. And so the things you want to look at about screen time, there's no such thing as, quote, screen time. It's differentiated use. Right. Like what serves their development and what is cultural trash, you know, and what are the algorithms designed in this activity they're doing? Is it one of the things like Snap that makes money off of collecting their data and getting them hooked on the random reinforcement and the constant Mm -hmm. scrolling, the constant, you know, you go from one thing to the next to the next. 
they become increasingly dysregulated. They go into the zone. They become little zombies. You take it away and they fall apart. Well, that's a sign they shouldn't be doing whatever that activity is. Um, an unhealthy relationship with it. Absolutely. Sure, that's the response. And, you know, I think that as as adults, we want to talk about in, in every family, like what is our own, what are our values around tech health and well-being? And how does each child's wiring interact with technology? Because if you have a kid with executive functioning disorder or ADD or ADHD or social anxiety or, you know, all different kinds of things that kids have, you want to include that in your thinking about how you set limits about how much time they're on screens and what they're doing and what the content of it is. So, you you know, not every child is the same in their ability to stop playing a game that they like. Some kids can transition really pretty easily. Some can't. Yeah. And then you have very different parenting approaches and you make different choices if your child can't. Well, and I think also Some, interestingly, when you talk about what you want your kid to learn and know, um, in, in achievement culture, the idea that they might fall behind on their ability to use tech to their benefit is very scary. But in the end, that can be learned later much more easily than you can retroactively try to apply to a child's development. Some of the more rooted issues in who you are as a human being and how you interact with others, I would imagine. So absolutely, it's much easier to think, oh, they're behind on their iPad because they aren't using it as well versus being able to recognize in their social skills or their behavior, they're behind on empathy. So you have to sort of work hard to understand that it's not going to be quite as visible, but it's as important, if not way more so to address that stuff uh, early on. You can develop computer literacy very easily. 80s. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're all trying. harder in your 80s. We're all trying. My parents will say, the we biggest... the TV day. Well, we decided yeah. to read instead. I'm like, just call next time and I'll work you through the TV. You wanted to watch it. You just couldn't get it to work. <laughs> yeah. You know, the most important things for children, K and third grade and elementary school are to read and be read to out loud by a human being they love. Mm. My friend, Marianne Wolford, a wonderful book about how to... T- Think about the difference between reading from liter- reading the book and reading online called Reader Come Home. And it's in reading books that we develop our moral compass. You know, we learn how other people think. Why did they do that? You know, how did how come the story ended that way? What if it ended another way? We reflect, we feel, we empathize. When you read on a screen, you don't read as deeply. You read faster, you don't reflect as much, and your tone of voice. You know, when we read, we're actually telling the stories in our head quietly when we're reading to ourselves. And the tone of voice isn't as rich because our brains don't read the same on an iPhone as they do from a piece of paper, which doesn't mean it's always bad to, you know, have a Kindle. Kindle's better than an iPhone. But when children are young, they need to really develop empathy they need to play with others they need to try and understand the world around them people who are like them and people who are different from them and it's huge it's huge and it you just don't get that when you're playing on screens all the time which isn't to say that you know on there are some things certainly kids can do with their friends on screens that are collaborative they learn to share they take turns they help each other out 
So the other thing to think about is if your kid is in elementary school and they're doing something with other people, honestly, you know who they're with. Listen to the language. Make sure it's in an open space. I think we're, it's really hard. This is so hard during the pandemic. Oh my gosh. So hard for parents of small children. Yeah. Is to know what your kids are doing and who they're talking to and not let them have unfiltered access to the internet. Right. That's a There's huge part so of it. There's so many easy controls. ways. Yeah. yeah to, and, and, and no child, in my thinking, should have a totally loaded smartphone. Agreed. In elementary yeah. school. Or YouTube. It's or dangerous or any of for those. a host yeah. of reasons. For sure. Well, so that brings me to my next one. I want to, I want to keep working through some of these. So this sure. is Leah. She has a four-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. You addressed some of this, so just touch on this quickly. But she said... We let our daughter, who's four, wind down after school with her Kindle for about 30 minutes as we prep dinner. She looks forward to it every day and has a meltdown if we tell her no. We have age and parent controls on it. Given the short amount of time, we think it's fine. Thoughts? For what it's worth, we don't allow Kindles at family dinners, outings, restaurants, etc. They're a great tool for airplanes and mainly just when we're prepping meals or really need to get stuff done around the house. Um, I think not allowing them in all those other places is fabulous. And the thing that I would say is um what what's she doing on the kindle and what's the nature of the meltdown i'd I'd want to understand that more and can you sub in watching a really good um you know sesame street or national geographic um show on the tv because a tv is neurologically more relaxing for a four-year-old okay and it's less strain on their eyes and in general, it's a better inter- quality interactive because a child can relax more physically. I mean, right. think about how They're you not feel. Touching the screen and the buttons. Yeah, and it's yeah. not as intense. It's not as neurologically yeah. stimulating. That's I'd be really curious to see if the same child, four-year-old, reacted when the TV show ended versus when the time on the Kindle ended. And that right. tells you whether or not your child's being also stressed out. Right. By the use of the um, more intense screen. Right. We think it's winding down, but maybe it's actually riling up in some ways. And that's why yeah. the response is, is that way. Yeah. All right. So she has a six-year-old son. He's asked on multiple occasions for his own YouTube channel because he wants to share monster truck and sports videos, to name a few. What's the best way to navigate and indulge and nurture his creative outputs? Uh, the answer has been no five plus times so far. Uh, I, I would say stick with your guns. Yeah. So nurturing I mean, creatively, why? separately, where he doesn't need control of of the output, maybe would would it be useful to have her own YouTube and she can monitor and put... They can do it together as a joint activity, right? but I would not give a child... A six-year-old doesn't need that. Right. And there's plenty of ways to be creative without having to share it with the world, which I think is another issue here. It's is like very dangerous to share it with the we world. All able to... And, and wanted to do without being viewed by others right. now must be shared at all times. And I get the urge of kids to feel participatory in that way. But we have to remember that creativity doesn't always need to be liked in the moment as it's happening well, or, or when you, on by others. Yes. And when you expose a child to that kind of need for reflective um, feedback, you're making them extremely vulnerable to At peer that pressure. Age especially, oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's just. Because then you get used to everything you do has to be judged by what other people think is more important. Yeah. Right. 
Right. It's dangerous, too. I mean, it's dangerous. I was thinking about this with sports because there was a uh, story the other day about girls dropping out of basketball in part because it's not as sexy of a sport and it's not as cute to share online as sharing like in your cute volleyball outfit or something. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how much of our time as kids was spent doing things that we weren't worried about, whether someone was videoing them, whether our hair looked cute and how that changes almost every single activity that kids do now is whether someone might pull out their phone and document it. It, it just makes me so angry and sad both at the same time when I hear something like this, because again, it's telling girls that who they are as sex objects matters more than who they are as athletes right. Right. and how they They're look is the most important that. thing about them. They're the them. ones yeah. telling the coaches that that's part of it. And that's, that's well, so sad. But but when you live, you know, not to get to, you know, whatever political here or something, but it's a form of misogyny. It's internalized misogyny from the culture at large that says, you know, that still tells girls, regardless of who you are, that your body is your most and what you look like in a sexually objectified way is the most important source of power. And that's what and they're seeing. That, on, you know, our great athletes. And ads and in everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very hard to, to get around, but you really have to deconstruct the, the you know, the, the identity politics around this stuff because there's so much backlash right now yeah. towards uh, women taking up space, being who they are, um, owning their bodies. Etc. It's a, it's a it's very precarious, and these are little these are insidious, disempowering right, ways sure. of uh, and unconscious ways of, of and it's women conditioning and that women then later have to realize. Oh, I didn't realize I've spent my whole life being conditioned to believe X or Y, and now I have to deprogram it. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? Love. Love. Yes. Again. There's a reason that we get this word so often. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, but by now I have told you the etymology, the history. I've shared some of my favorite poems ruminating on the word love. I've even shared the history of the heart icon as a symbol for it. So today I have found another way to talk about love. It's a fun fact about a major American city that comes from the word that the ancient Greeks gave to one type of love. Now, the ancient Greeks studied love and assigned different types, and one of those was philia, affectionate regard or friendship, usually between equals, a virtuous love without passion or lust, a concept that was uh, developed by Aristotle. And in his best-known work on ethics, philia is expressed as loyalty to friends, specifically brotherly love, family, and community. It requires virtue, equality, and familiarity. So I think you might have heard it in there. Brotherly love. So Philadelphia, a.k.a. the city of brotherly love, founded and named in 1862 by William Penn to serve as the capital of the Pennsylvania colony with the city of brotherly love moniker coming from the literal Greek translation. So Philos or Philia, beloved or dear, and then Adelphos, brother or brotherly. So I've never thought about or wondered why Philadelphia was the city of brotherly love, but Philia right in there. Speaking of great words, you gonna learn today. The word of the week is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. The word of the week is winkle picker. Now, this sounds like a person in charge of selecting or potentially gathering male genitalia, but no, far from it. A winkle picker is a shoe with a sharp pointed toe. So Winkle's first definition 
is a small herbivorous shore-dwelling mollusk with a spiral shell. And another definition, chiefly British, is to displace, remove, or evict from a position, usually used without, as in it was hard to winkle out the facts. So winkle plus picker is the notion that the point of the shoe is sharp enough to be used for picking winkles out of their shells or for winkling out a situation. So uh, now that I know the real definition, well, first of all, I hadn't even heard the word winkle picker, but I now intend to use it. Probably not in its correct form. Just because I know the definition is a shoe with a sharp pointed toe uh, will not prevent me from telling my girlfriends who date lame dudes that they're bad winkle pickers. In a sentence, for real. The brothers wore identical white shirts with dark ties, dark trousers, and black winkle pickers. Honestly, from here on out, winkle picker. is It's, it's going to become part of my vocabulary. Now let's get back to the interview. Okay, let's move on to Nicole. She has a six-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy. You sort of touched on us, um, but she was asking about whether tech has value for kids in the same way as it might to adults for quote-unquote zoning out. So she says, for me, after a long, hopefully productive day, I have a set time of mindless phone or TV time, just entertainment to unwind. And I think a lot of adults will say, oh, I watch that show because I don't have to think too hard. I just need a stretch of my day where I'm not overdoing it. And she said her kids like it too with set boundaries on time and content. Does it have the same value for kids or do we project onto them the idea that they need to zone out and they really don't? I think it, it not only does it not zone them out in the same way, it zones them out in an unproductive way, in a potentially bad way. One of the things that we need to teach kids really, especially at four and six, is how to self-soothe, how to calm yourself down, how to just be. And when you hand a child a device, you are teaching them to use stimulants as a coping mechanism. So the difference, you know, it's a little dated, but the difference between like playing Candy Crush, just to quote zone out versus zoning out on your bed or playing whatever it is in the real world is that when you're playing in the real world, you're calming yourself down. You're maybe being goofy, maybe being silly, maybe listening to music, maybe you know, doing whatever it is you're doing, but it is a calming, self-soothing thing that you're doing. When you, quote, zone out, you're revving up. You're distracting yourself with an algorithm that's stimulating, unless, you know, you're listening to music or something. But if you're playing a game or watching something, because it is on a device, and if it's a fast-paced thing, your you're hand... You're, you're basically teaching kids to use screens instead of, you know, pacifiers, if you can right. see the analogy the there. outside world or create yeah. something or, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, so Rachel. You know, ba- parents should not be handing babies their smartphones when they're frustrated or toddlers or four right. or six-year-olds. You're, what you need to do is say, I know this is so frustrating. Let's play. I spy with my little eye. Let's sing a song. Let's. Talk about how frustrating it is to wait. But when you give them the capacity to play a game or watch t- you know, YouTube videos, you are teaching them that the way you cope with boredom is to use a device. And that's how we develop problematic tech dependency. Right. That, that absolutely makes sense. And I think most fa- parents know the research of uh, two years and below is where the real damage can be caused. And we know the research points to all the issues with screen time at such a young age. But um, I think many, when they get past that age, um, 
either because they're self-diluting or because they don't know the research or because it's just so much easier to do, um, it becomes a pacifier of sorts when a mm-hmm. kid's freaking out and having meltdowns. So also I would say probably have other things at the ready, um, coloring books or handheld um, toys, right? That, yeah. So you don't always only have the one option of a phone there. You know, put a list on your fridge with your kid. Come up with five things they love to do. Right. Have 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 a special place, you know, have a, a, a box or a crate or something, you know, that, full of things that they can turn to when they are, quote, bored. Because you're also giving them a value when you always turn to the same thing. That's right. right. You're, you're telling them what's valuable the same way you have to eat your vegetables instead of, oh, my gosh, vegetables are delicious. Right. If it's always yeah. this is the thing you go to, then they're learning that. OK, so well, my, you know, when, when, when parents are glued to their own devices and kids are, quote, left yeah. to their own devices, they'll turn into their devices. That's exactly that's- what I was going to ask next. So this Rachel, who has eight year old twin girls, God help her. Um, mm-hmm. She asked that question. She said, like many people, I spend too much time on social media and my phone. It's tethered to my job. She's in PR. She's promoting products and brands online. She's connecting them via social spaces. So how can I encourage my daughters to limit their screen time without seeming hypocritical? You say this is work and you use you use you know, use your own tech to outsmart your tech dependency. Set filters. Use freedom from distraction. Put limits on when you are on your device and when you're not. And, you know, it, it's really hard for us as adults to do this. But the good news is, is there, there are all kinds of wonderful apps now to, to self-monitor, to help right. us tame tech by using tech. But I think that you want to differentiate between your eight-year-olds and you as an adult that I have work, I have a job, this is the way, this is my office I'm in the office now. You go play outside. You play in the living room. You play with each other. Your office, your work is school. And, you know, if you that it, there's not an equivalency. Right. And I think in your book, you talk a lot about do as I say, not as I do is the key to trust for kids. Yes. If if parents say follow the rules and then they say well we're going to we're going to break the rules and take you out of school to do something fun they think it's exhilarating for their kids but it's actually stressful for their kids to figure out why is it good to break the rules now if you usually tell me not to or don't do this with your iPad but I'm going to do it all the time then they don't know whether to trust their parents as as giving them um the right skills that's right and you know one of the most basic ways in which parents cave and I really understand these are real dilemmas this is not simple I do not mean to simplify this but if your children want as to be on an app that has a legal age of 13 and they're under 13 and you let them on it. What are you teaching them? Mm. And it's really hard because if all the other parents are doing it, then, you know, is your kid socially isolated? There's a wonderful organization started by parents called wait until eighth, which is wait until eighth grade to give your kids fully loaded phones or access to the internet and it's a great organization full of wonderful advice and research and resources to go to you know, when you're done with this podcast, if you want to learn more about why it's really important to, to slowly introduce your children to the world of social media and how to make sure that they are not socially If you give them like a quip phone or a penguin phone or some of the other, you know, flip phones yeah. that let them have contact with their friends, but not access unfettered access to YouTube. And that's and huge because now a lot of parents who don't understand 
the social capital of being able to text or connect with friends don't realize that their kid might not get invited to parties or have friends if they aren't able to participate. It's just a matter of controlling and monitoring that by using the right kind of devices. Um, That's right. So they're not totally shut off. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, so Rachel also says one of the greatest fears for tween and teen girls on social media is comparison culture. At a time when awkwardness reigns, it can be very difficult to scroll and see someone whose life or whose looks seem better than yours. What do parents do offline to help kids navigate this? Well, um, I think you want to help your kids sort of understand that all the the ways in which lives are fictionalized and curated on social media. I think you really want to do things that help your children develop a strong sense of who they are, what they like to do, what they're naturally drawn to, what talents they want to develop. In other words, to pick things that are meaningful to them and that they then, you know, spend time doing And I would also say I would limit my kids' exposure to some of that stuff, just the actual amount of time they're allowed to go on. Um, But I think what children really want to know, first and foremost, is that they matter and they matter to you, which means you're not on your phone 24-7. And then that who they're becoming is is important and exciting. And they need time and encouragement to pursue in their own lives not digitally, not online, but the things that they are interested in. And kids who have activities that they love and that they pursue outside of school or in addition to school tend to do a lot better in general in terms of self-esteem than kids who are just left allowed to just be online for hours and hours on end and just yeah. follow the, you know, the, the, the okay. dom. Yeah. cultural stuff that's on available to them. And I think it's um, harder, I think for girls too, because I find like, I was very grateful to my mom for not being obsessive about looks. Yes. She was very well put together always and had great, you know, clothes and went to work and looked great, but she just didn't say, well, you should pluck your eyebrows. You should dye your hair. Mm-hmm. You should put, wear makeup. You should do whatever. Now, in the moment, I didn't realize that I looked awkward. And I look back and I say, well, you could have helped a little bit more in my awkward phase. And I'm like, good Lord. But I also find as an adult, I have a good balance of caring about that Mm -hmm. stuff enough, especially for my job where I'm on TV, but not obsessing. And I have friends that I know whose parents were very into that. And they have always been way more 
um, concerned about that stuff. Right. And so finding yeah. that balance of like, you want your kid to not be a, a weirdo <laughs> right? Yeah. who's looked at as not quite fitting in and not quite like having their, you know, what together, but also not obsess over it, especially at a young age where you're, you're teaching girls way too early to be obsessive about makeup and everything else. Yeah. And we've seen a big spike in eating disorders and disordered yeah. eating and, and, you know, b- body loathing certainly during the pandemic, but prior to it with social media and, you know, there are all these apps. And this is another reason you really want to know what your kids are doing when they are on screens, because there's a whole world of websites that, you know, you, you click diet and suddenly you're in a, you know, the algorithms teach you how to make yourself throw up or take ipecac or, you know, my Anna and pro Anna anorexia Mm -hmm. websites. And, you know, they get tons of social reinforcement for saying they starved themselves for half the day or only ate a certain kind of food or whatever. But on the most basic level, it's really important, like what you said about your mom, that women do not pass on to their daughters what the culture teaches us to do, which is to bond through body loathing. Oh, my hair. Oh, my butt. Oh, my thighs. Oh, you know. You look great. No, I don't. I'm disgusting. Right. (laughs) I can't can't believe I wear this. What are you talking about? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And it's like we join by putting ourselves down. And it's really stupid because actually everybody knows what you look like. And And this is just all part of a a, performative because it's the it's again the conditioning that we sort of exactly right. Yeah. Let's go to Skip. He's a single dad who splits custody of his tween daughter. And he wanted to know how to prepare a daughter for a world where you might be able to soon deep fake and have someone do something they didn't do as a form of bullying or revenge. Um, I would do things like watch The Social Dilemma. I would teach them a lot about digital privacy and safety. I would talk to them a lot about what healthy love is like. And I would watch whatever it is they're watching with them and help them see what is examples of somebody being treated well or not well. And I would say that um, whenever you're in trouble, honey, I hope you'll come to me first because nobody will care about you or help you online as well as I will. And I know it's hard to believe, but there's nothing you can tell me, no matter how embarrassing or how scared or how bad or how wrong you think it is. I will do my best to stay really calm and help you get through it. So, you know, you want to teach them how to protect themselves, but you also want to let them know that if they get into trouble, you will be there for them and you will not be scary or judgy and that it's much better for them to turn to you, their dad, than to turn to strangers online. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, I think also sort of, sometimes gently and kindly letting kids know that when somebody else is mean or bullying them or lashing out, that it might be because of their own unhappiness or something is wrong or something's bad for them. And to be empathetic about it instead of um, lashing back out, right? To not repeat that behavior, but right. to hopefully that, you know, you, you let people know that those behaviors come from somewhere that has nothing to do with them so that they can handle it better when someone is being cruel or, or evil to them. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you don't ever let anybody attack or, you know, right. Of course your, your own personhood. Yeah. 
Uh, my friend Claire has a, a son and then a 12-year-old daughter, and she specifically asked about her 12-year-old daughter. She said when she was 12, she relied heavily on mirrors to to try on different looks and emotions and person personalities. And she would get external affirmations through comments about her looks from friends and family, and they weighed heavily on her as a kid. She has a 12-year-old daughter, and she noticed she spends a long time in front of the mirror. Um, she doesn't have any social media yet, and she asked, is social media sort of taking place of mirrors and in-person external affirmations? And how does she find those internal affirmations when so much of everything is now posted and people are reacting and telling you how you should feel? Well, keep her off social media as much as you can because it amplifies everything that, you know, she experiences is much harder and, and much more amplified. And the, the, the thing that is so shocking to me still, I mean, it, it does not ever stop to just stun me is the amount of hate that girls mm. get back when they post a picture mm-hmm. and they're you know they're used to my pretty was one website you know tell me the truth tell me what you really think and my goodness you know for everyone you know post back you know accept yourself you know some kind of body positive thing there was just tons of really ugly hate so I would say that you know it's very normal for kids girls especially at 12 to be looking in the mirror to try and figure out who they are. It's one of the hardest things to understand is when you're 12, you don't look like you're going to look like when you're 20. Right. right. Um, <laughs> you yeah. are very much an awkward work in process. Yeah. And, and again, the kid, the girls who have something they feel confident about or yes. they're striving for of their own mm-hmm. choice, you know, learning how to skateboard, whatever it is, skiing, anything. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they are drawn to something. We overuse the word passion, but it, it's true. If there's something you really want to learn to do, you really are drawn to that you're willing to put in the time, the effort to get better at it, that can feed and nourish self-esteem and self-acceptance, including body acceptance. Sports are fabulous for that. I say that all the time because I was, it's you know, such a so tall, important. awkward kid. And yeah. so I knew I was great at sports and my body lets me do this. So it's okay yeah. if I have to figure out my hair and my braces. And All right, I have one last one for you. Let me just say one thing. For kids yeah. who aren't athletically inclined, one of the best things they can do is volunteer at a local daycare center. Mm. There's for kids who can't go the sports channel and not everybody can for a host of reasons. When you help somebody else out, it makes yeah. you feel good. When you're 13 mm. and you show up at Head Start or whatever's in your neighborhood and you've got three, four year olds who run and grab your knees because they're so happy to see you. That does so much for middle school girls. And that sort of replicates so, teamwork, too, in a different way um, mm-hmm. without the sports aspect. OK, last one. Erin has 16 and 17 year old daughters. Yeah. Uh, she was the first of us to get started. And we still can't believe she has a kid looking at colleges. But <laughs> she talks about the identity online versus the identity that yes. you sort of create, even unintentionally online. Mm-hmm. And how to reconcile the idea that, you know, could be a boy that walks past them and doesn't say hello and then goes to the other side of the room and then texts them hello. <laughs> how do you how do you figure out how to be as much yourself online as you can be in person? By doing as much in person with people. Mm. By in you know resisting the you know texting with somebody versus meeting up at Starbucks. You want to have those 16 and 17 year olds in real life interactions as much as possible, which is why it's so like things like camps or, you know, um, anything where they are 
learning how to talk to strangers in a safe, obviously in a safe way is, is so important. How to, or, you know, when kids are 16, they don't want to order pizza on the phone because you have to talk to a human being. This is not a good thing. So the way that you learn to bridge that gap is actually to try and spend as much, you know, ideally more time face-to-face doing things right. as you are texting. And it's so sad to me, like, when I interviewed a bunch of college-age kids, I said, you know, that's really awful. Like, our generation, we suck at falling in love. We don't know how to flirt. We don't know even know how to, like, yes. s- talk to somebody without or reading doing, someone's know, facial shots of alcohol. What they, exactly. What, their, what is their face telling me? And how useful right. is that in this conversation versus online where you don't you don't get anything back in the back That's and right. forth? You don't know if you're making someone sad or happy or aroused or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So what that, what, you know, what I would say is the best way to bridge that gap is to spend as much time socializing in real, in the real world and doing different things, you know, get a job, work with strangers, have to be nice. (laughs) Hi, how can I help you? You know, stuff like that, as well as doing things, you know, going on uh, like a Habitat for Humanity, some kind of service trip with kids you don't know. Those are amazing experiences. And kids often say that was like the best thing I ever did. I was so scared. I didn't know anybody going, yeah. you know, and practice before your kids go to college. Give them opportunities to go away for a week or two, to, to have to share a co-ed bathroom, you know, to do their own laundry, to be independent in small spurts before they go away to school. If they're going to go away to school, is extremely helpful. Yeah. Gosh, this is so, so good, Catherine. And we ran out of time. So everyone has to read the book now. Everyone go buy the book, obviously. (laughs) Everyone uh, go to Catherine's website if you want to follow up with more videos and insight, listen to her on podcast, do all the things. Uh, Maybe she'll answer the questions we didn't get to there. Thank you so much for the time and for the work. I mean, it must be really hard to be inundated with people's stories of a lot of these difficult situations and you do such a great job helping people navigate. So thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Sarah. You know, the last thing I just do want to say is that there's so much good that can come out of our connectivity. Yeah. And using screens wisely. And it's really important not, you know, to also remember that that these tools are, you know, they have the capacity to connect us in also some really, really wonderful pro-social, fabulous, world-changing ways. Yeah. And that's what we want to get our kids to do. Just yeah. about discipline and using them right, which is the tough part when your kid is screaming. And that's it why sure we're is. All, all coming to you. Thank you so much, Catherine. You're so welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Lovely to talk with you. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. I'll tell you something to read, to watch, to listen to. I'll share a story. Whatever's on my mind. What's on my mind now is it's fall, y'all. Or if you prefer, it's spooky season. Or if you're a basic bitch, it's pumpkin spice season. And that means we go back to 2009 for a McSweeney's classic. Yes, it's the annual reading of It's Decorative Gourd Season, Mother by Colin Neeson. And it begins like this. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get my hands on some gourds and arrange them in a horn-shaped basket at my dining room table. That shit is going to look so seasonal. I'm about to head up to the attic right now to find that wicker dust it off, and jam it with an insanely ornate assortment of shellacked vegetables. When my guests come over, it's going to be like, blammo! Check out my shellacked decorative vegetables, assholes. Guess what season it is? It's fall. There's a nip in the air, and my house is full of mutant f***ing squash. I may even throw some multicolored leaves into the mix, all haphazard like a crisp October breeze just blew through and f***ed that shit up. 
Then I'm going to get to work on making a beautiful f***ing gourd necklace for myself. People are going to be like, aren't those gourds straining your neck? And I'm just going to thread another gourd onto my necklace without breaking their gaze and quietly reply, it's fall faces. You're either ready to reap this freaky ass harvest or you're not. And then it gets really weird from there. You'll have to go read it for yourself. It's on McSweeney's. It's a classic. It is once again called It's Decorative Gourd Season, Mother. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions, dilemmas, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe or follow That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please, and give it a review. It's really important. It really helps. You might end up on the podcast if you do. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. (laughs) Ten seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships. Your skills. Your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network.